Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. As one of the most famous beer cities in the world, Brussels is well-trodden ground. But a new book seeks to explore the Belgian capital through objects that have helped define its drinking culture. Owen Walsh, the author of A History of Brussels Beer and 50 Objects, is my guest this week. But first, All About Beer is back online and producing original content for beer enthusiasts and professionals. Visit allaboutbeer.com to see the latest. And if you want to support us in that endeavor, we've set up a Patreon for both readers and professional companies in the beer space. You can check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to learn more. And we're able to bring you this show each week, thanks to the companies that support independent journalism in the beer space. You can learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates by emailing sponsor at beeredge.com. And today's episode is sponsored by Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company's award-winning craft non-alcoholic beers are a fit for all times. Downtime, work time, game time, even gym time. Pick a time and grab an athletic because it's about time you can enjoy a great tasting brew anytime you want, even right now. Head to athleticbrewing.com and get some fresh brews delivered. New customers can even get 20% off with code ALLABOUTBEER20 and free shipping on two six-packs or more. It can be hard to come up with new ideas for beer books, so sometimes taking inspiration from another concept, like lists, just makes sense. This is not a bad thing. And in the case of Owen Walsh's new book, A History of Brussels Beer and 50 Objects, it's a very good thing. This is especially true since he does not talk about beer specifically, with a few exceptions, since that concept has been done over and over again. There are tangible objects that have helped shape drinking in Brussels over the centuries, and by carefully curating a tight list, Walsh is able to weave together a longer story. This is no surprise, as Walsh, who is an award-winning writer and the editor of Brussels Beer City, has worked over the years to tell stories beyond beer. The book is available now. He spoke to me from Brussels. Here's our conversation. I, I feel like there's an allure to Belgium and Brussels yeah. for beer drinkers around the world. And it's very easy to talk about the beers and and and, and people do all the time. But I love this project of you do talk about beers, but it's the other things related to it. Um, and before we talk about that though, I, I I'm wondering. You know, you who live there now, what do you see as the continuing allure of Belgium, of Brussels? Because the world has evolved beer wise, but there still seems to be the reverence towards everything coming out of the country where you're currently sitting. I think that's a really interesting question because I think what you've seen over the last 10 years, 15, 20, as you're saying, is that Belgian beer is not what it used to be in terms of its international reputation for a large part because 30 years ago, Belgium was like the, the, the beer country before other countries had their sort of beer revivals. Uh, and now I feel a little bit sometimes like Belgium was a little bit left behind by the beer revivals that have taken place in other countries. And you see that in the statistics about beer exports that it's consistently declining in most countries except for France because in France they can't get enough Belgian beer. Right. So I think <laughs> I think that's that, that's sort of the broader in the, the the broader sense is that like Belgian beer has less of a 
pull than it used to, but the pull that it does have has kind of distilled into one or two discrete kind of areas. So the one, the, the obvious one as someone sitting here in Brussels is, is lambic and cures and spontaneous fermentation. So the interest in that has just like massively exploded. And on the other hand, you're seeing not quite so much an interest in Trappists as really actually digging down into specific Trappists. So I'm thinking of like Orval. And then, and then a sort of third, third leg of that stool is, you know, that continued appreciation for Cezanne and that sort of farmhouse, farmhouse tradition. Um, so it's not so much like Belgian beer as, as a sort of umbrella concept is still as um, emotionally attractive as it used to be, but it's those sorts of parts of the Belgian beer story, which continue to pull on the heartstrings of uh, beer drinkers and, and um, brewing romantics. I like that. I, I like that you're talking about romantics because there is there is so much of that feeling that can happen in a proper beer drinking setting, and the beer itself is part of it. But so are you know the other intangibles, or sometimes tangibles. You know, it's where you're drinking, uh, it's what you're drinking from, it's you know, the 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 intent of the drinking as well. Like there, there, there can be a lot of fun, uh, spiritualness, romantic, uh, romanticism, uh, with this and with beer. And I feel like a lot of the objects that you picked play into that, you know, they, 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 they tug on different parts of the soul or tug on different parts of, you know, heartstrings or nostalgia. Um, in addition to them, them being important for various reasons. Yeah. I mean, so like when I conceived of this project, which let's be honest, is not an original concept, like this idea of picking <laughs> objects in order yeah. to illustrate the broader arc of history is uh, something which I, and I do acknowledge that in the book, you know, I've ripped it off basically from the British museum and from the BBC. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, but in fairness, the British museum kind of, you know, Rip well, everything let's, else let's out put of, it like yeah. this. They did a hundred objects and they did the history of the world. So I have only done 50 and it's the history of Brussels beer. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Like I, what I've tried to do, you know, on these projects, you can do a sort of a grab bag. You can pick the, the, the you can pick the best of sort of the, the classics, the, the highlights, um, and you'll get an interesting story. But what I also wanted to do was sort of tell one overarching story, but also tell like different stories within that. Um, you know, different strands of history. So, you know, something because I am who I am, I, I have a big interest in like brewery architecture and the built environment and and that. So I wanted to tell through the different objects I selected, you know, that kind of story. I also wanted to tell like Brussels sort of agricultural background and, you know, how much farming and and context has been important for the production of beers and essentially why Brussels makes wheat beers, spontaneously fermented wheat beers, and it doesn't make like you know, traditional barley beers or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that was really important for me to not just pick like a grab bag of stuff, but actually to sort of have a good think about what are the stories I wanted to tell, how important they are in explaining on the one hand, the history of beer in the city, but also the other hand, the history of the city and its beers, if you kind of get the distinction. And so much of that is context specific, like the locations, the places, the people, um, and and trying to bring that alive a little bit. In, in telling, you know, so it's not just like this beer was brewed here and this beer was brewed here and this brewery was there because quite quickly that becomes a very dull story. Yes. Um, how many objects did you start with? 
to whittle it I was down always going well actually yeah so I actually uh, back in spring of 2021 when I sort of conceded this I kind of I oscillated between 25 and 50 uh, objects um, to sort of conceive of the project and 25 was too few in the end and 50 I leave it up to the reader to decide if it was too many but there is at least 10 or 15 things that I would have loved to have included um, and I, I had that basically I had in my mind it was going to be a number and then I was going to find the objects to fit the number and the narrative. But how many? So when you did your list, though, yeah, you're saying you had closer to 75. Oh, probably or? I had about 75, 60, okay. 60, 70. Absolutely. Yeah. OK. And, and it, with more time, I imagine that list could have even grown. Probably. But also, you know, that was the whole point of the project, too, is that, you know, um, constraints breed creativity. And that's why I set myself the challenge. It was going to be 50. And I had to make the decision which 50. And then it was going to be 500 words about each 50. And it was only going to be 500 words. So immediately you create yourself as a writer a challenge to, first of all, choose. And choosing is always the most difficult thing yeah. as a writer to do what makes the cut and what doesn't. And then choosing the words that you're going to use to write about it, which was the greatest challenge, I think. You know, once I'd, I mean, I'd picked, I'd picked a, I, I was going to say I picked the 50 objects pretty quickly, but actually probably about three months in, I'd, I only finalized the last 10 objects, probably when I'd already written the first 10 or 12, you know? Yeah. No, I, and, and I love that, that whole idea of limiting breeding creativity because it, it, it does force you to think critically, but also emotionally of, but I have to do this. And then, you know, it's what you love more than, 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 than something else that's there. Um, and I imagine a book like this, you've been getting feedback from people on what you didn't include. Um, yeah, there's been a, there's been a little <laughs> bit. And the thing is, I was what I was most worried about, actually, was that it was going to be too contemporary centric, if you get my meaning. Sure. And and you, you'll have read the book and hopefully some of the readers who listen to this or some of the listeners might have read it by now. Um, it does lean more heavily on the most on the more recent history. And, and that's out of necessity as much as it is out of interest, because frankly, you know, the further you go back in history and any any writer of history, be a writer, or otherwise will tell you the further you go back, the harder it is to source things. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's and somebody is going to find something that is incredibly obscure that missed the original research that then blows shit out of the water and goes from there. Exactly. Um, and, and also Brussels. I mean, people who, who don't know the Brussels beer scene might not know how factional it is. So mm -hmm. um, when you're including something from one brewery, maybe not including something from another brewery, that's going to upset a certain faction in the city and vice versa. Um, and other breweries might say, well, why did you include that? Include this. Um, and ultimately, you, have, you just have to say, well, yeah, that's my choice. It's my book. If you want to write your history of Brussels beer, Nobody's I, stopping you. I'm I'm glad that you said that first because that's been my <laughs> response to a fair amount of people. Who are like, well, why didn't you do that? It's like my name is on the cover. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, go write your own book if you want yeah. to. Um, and I, and I'm very clear in the introduction as well. Like, this is my history of Brussels beer. This is not the history of Brussels. Of course, beer. and that's very important. And it's also important because I'm a foreigner, so I will necessarily have a different view on the history of beer in the city than somebody who is 
somebody to take an example who features in the book quite prominently is Ivan de Bats, the co-founder of Brasserie de la Seine. Of course. If he was to write this book, it would be very different because he's from here. He knows it much more intimately. His French is much more is, is much obviously much better than mine. Um, so his access to sources will be different. So I'm I would be curious. I mean, come and tell me if you think something should have been in there. Tell me, like I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not too precious about that. The book is finished. I'm not going to write it a second time. Yeah. <laughs> um. So it is contemporary, but there is, there are some historical items in here, yeah. and one of the ones that I was really drawn to early on in the book is the Brewer's Oath. Yes. And. What I love about this, and I think this sort of plays into the first point that I, that I was trying to make, is you know th- there there is an allure, there is a history, there is a reverence to Belgian beer, to Brussels beer, and it starts with the brewers taking this oath, you know, swearing, you know, to do right by the beer, yeah, um, and and that's not something that exists in the modern era. I think by you know people will graduate from programs and they'll hang a diploma on the wall or something. But this, I I, I was so taken by the oath, which you know, and you have this this great photo, um, yeah, uh, in there as well. So um, let's start there. Well, I mean, Gills, like we're talking about um, early modern Europe here, Renaissance Europe. So that was written in the eighteen hundreds, um, where the Gills were really a powerful force so the brewers guild but also the bakers guild or the tailors guild or the you know stonemasons guild they all had their political power um in brussels they all got to participate in you know the royal pageantry of the time and uh what i found interesting about the the oath was you know that it was it was it was put down in paper what you were allowed to do or what you should do and what your penalty was going to be if you didn't fulfill the functions of the oath. Yeah. Um, now, I, I I mean, I think as with a lot of these historical documents, probably it was, it was adhered to more in the breaking of the oath than in the, than in the adherence to the oath, you know? Um, you like, I, I, I remember reading some of the histor- historical documents saying, you know, um, there will be tussles between the powers of the guild and the powers of the city administration being two distinct political factions in the city. And if one tried to force regulations on the other, there would be riots and there would be this, that and the other. Um, and then on the other side, the brewers would attempt to exert their political and financial because for, to, for, to a large extent, their power was, in fi- was financial because brewing was quite a lucrative business for them. And they had a, a chokehold you know, a monopoly on brewing in the city right up until the French Revolution, which sort of washed everything uh, like that away. They were able to try and flex their muscles and strong arm, you know, the city administration is saying, well, OK, we're going to do this our way. And, you know, you can go take a running jump off a short pier, you know. And that's then, I, yeah. that, that whole thing disappeared then as of like 1805, 1812, 1810, when the French arrived. And, you know, it was the modern world. The Enlightenment arrived and it was free market capitalism for everyone. But do you think that there's still the financial taking the financial part out of it as well? The idea of an oath and the idea of trying to do right or having penalties for doing wrong, um, by and large, are Belgian brewers, Brussels brewers, are they still 
thinking of history? Do they still appreciate where this industry came from? I think as much as some brewers would like to disagree with that statement, I think there are, they are everybody and I mean the industry is defined by its history or absence of history or rejection of history. So you have some brewers in Brussels. And we're talking, I mean, we're, what are we now, 2022? There's probably about 20, yeah. over 20 breweries in the city now, which is, for me, when I moved here in 2009, there was one, yeah. um, which doesn't sound like a lot f- for American listeners, but that's like, I mean, a gigantic, a gigantic leap. Um, there are brewers who adhere to the old traditions in the sense of they respect the tradition and they want to interpret it for a modern drinker. There are others who define themselves against that tradition and because they want to be something else. And then there are others who totally are unfamiliar with the tradition because they're coming from maybe this sort of international craft attitude. Um, sure. And tradition is not important for them. But everybody exists within that tradition. What was really interesting for me is like, and, and something whoever, if you read the book, you'll see, you know, Brussels is so attached, or at least internationally, to its cures and its lambic tradition. But for the best part of 100 years, Brussels, 100 maybe 50 years brussels was like a like a pills country like a like a bottom fermenting uh city that was the, those were the biggest breweries and that's what everybody drank and for me that's always really interesting because there's so much myth and reverence and 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 i'm not saying that it's not it doesn't deserve it because like lambic brewing is this just weird idiosyncratic idea of how to make beer that has survived against all convention but people just say, well, Brussels, that's Lambic. But it's not. I mean, Brussels is Lambic. Yeah. It was Lambic. It was Lambic in the 1800s and it was, it's Lambic in the 2000s. But in the time between that, it wasn't. Um, and I think that's really interesting because you talk to somebody again, like some of the brewers are making pills and they're making bottom fermentation beers again. And they will reference the beers that don't exist anymore from the 1950s and the 1940s, which their parents or themselves, if they're, if they're of a certain generation, will have drunk and saying, yeah, that was really actually, you know, easy drinking beers that we liked. And I love Lambic, but I also love, you know, non, non tart, non cloudy beers. Yeah. In thinking about the relationship that people have with, with, with beer, um, food comes up quite a bit yeah. and by my count, and I hope I'm not wrong on this. I counted two out of 50 in your book that are food related items. Yeah. So cheese and hot dogs. That's true. Which cheese I can kind of go along. You know, I, I, I imagine Could we include that- cherries in that cherries are a food stuff. Okay. Sure. All right. But I mean, I mean prepared stuff, you know, like, yeah. like man-made yeah. processed process. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, there's some sort of manufacturing that goes on yeah. um, or, you know, craftsmanship as opposed to, to picking something off of a tree. Um, yeah. We can throw cherries in there as well. Um, uh, talk to me about cheese. Talk to me about hot dogs. Yeah. I mean, uh, the cheese is a very simple one. Uh, Brussels produces, or at least the hinterland around Brussels produces a very particular type of cheese. Um, since I wrote the book, I've become lactose intolerant, so I'm no longer allowed to eat it. Oh, goodness. Um, I know. Uh, and it's quite a pungent cheese. But if you go to the traditional cafes here in Brussels, you'll still find that you're able to order that. And it usually comes in a little pot um, mixed in with some cream cheese and some chives and shallots, maybe. 
uh, with a little dash of lambic and then spread over some brown bread. And, you know, it's, I mean, when you're talking about like traditional Brussels uh, pub food, that's, that is it. It's called potekes. Um, yeah. And that, that's it. That's the classic. If you go to a place and they have that, then you know you're, 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 you've made a right decision. And there's also other things. There's also some charcuterie that goes along with that that I would have loved to include too, but, you know, space is limited. Uh, when it comes to the <laughs> hot dog, the, 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 so I, I write this in, in, in the entries, in the entry for the, for the hot dog. Like, and people might find this strange, but for a long part, like beer was for cafes and wine was for restaurants in Brussels. You know, and and that's sure. to a large extent that's actually s- still the case for fine dining in 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 Belgium. You know, you you be on you you you're you're lucky if you find a very good restaurant that has a very good beer selection alongside its good wine selection. But what was important for me was to sort of illustrate in the last fifteen years you've had a generation of um, chefs and restaurateurs and culinary entrepreneurs who. Uh, either don't recognize that sort of Chinese wall between beer and food or who deliberately set out to um, knock it down. Um, so a classic example in Brussels will be a restaurant called Noit Nikunuk, which has been open for, it's probably about 12 years at this point. Um, a tiny restaurant, like tiny, there's only about five tables in there. And their whole thing is cooking with beer and serving the best beer that they can find. Um, and then, in the wake of that restaurant, there's been other restaurants that have opened up. Um, there's been cheese shops, all sorts of things. And I picked that hot dog because actually it gave me an excuse to eat meat. And normally I'm a veg- vegetarian. Um, so it gave me a chance to buy the hot dog, which is, which is, which is made with choucroute that is boiled in Lambic uh, in, a, in, a, in a sandwich place that commissions special labels for, from their Lambic beers. And they've made a beer with Cantillon. And it just sort of shows that like Brussels of 2022 is a place where you can now go in to a restaurant and expect good beer. And if they don't have it, that should be a disappointment rather than sort of the assumption. There's a, I got a kick out of this because you get a little meta in your book by one of your 50 objects is a book. And, mm-hmm. and, and one that you can still buy today. You can, if you're looking. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did that book make it in? Which book are we talking about now? Because oh, uh, around, uh, around. Oh, well, years. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, first of all, I, I needed to pay due deference to uh, the Tim Webb School of Publishing. Um, <laughs> and also to Joe Stang, who has... Someone he wouldn't like to be described as a mentor, but okay. someone who's been hugely encouraging of my work in the last, I mean, of my work, that sounds so pompous because I've only been writing for five years. Um, but he's been, I mean, as someone who's knows more about uh, Belgian beer than I'll ever, than I'll ever have a chance to, I mean, someone who's been very supportive of me. Um, and I really wanted to give a sense. So around Brussels and 80 beers is a guidebook, which was published in, for the first time in 2009, right. um, which was really came at a propitious moment because 2009 2010 2012 was really when things started to change in brussels and it was suddenly like something is happening here and what's really nice about the book is that that it it captures and as with all guidebooks i'm sure if you've ever written one you'll know this the minute you publish it it becomes out of date oh yeah no that's i i did too and then immediately stopped 
<laughs> but what's nice about that is that okay, they come become a, they, they, they immediately lose their their contemporary nature, but they become a capsule of a particular moment in time mm-hmm. that is that you're never going to be able to experience again because you know the the hospitality business being as it is, the churn is so huge in bars opening and closing and owners changing. You're never going to capture that moment again in real life. So the best way to do it is in a book. And what I what I think that book really does well is sort of gives a landscape, illustrates the landscape at a, at a sort of pivotal moment when we're just coming out of the worst years of Belgian of Brussels beer story and into the really sort of fat years of like constant change, constant evolution. Um, and yeah, obviously, I think Tim would probably crucify me if I hadn't mentioned him at least once in the book. um yeah it's you either have to mention him or write him a check so mentioning him is yeah yeah, that's the that that's the that's the pro move for uh struggling writers you've you've mentioned lambic a lot and Mm -hmm. it's where the book starts and ends i'm not really giving anything away here um i i was surprised that Cool ships were not a larger part of beer in Brussels because they've become so ubiquitous here in the U.S. Like everybody who's opening up is is going to have one. And yeah. I know you you ran through the numbers of of how many breweries are in the city, and it is surprisingly, I'm going to say surprisingly small, even though it's not. Um, but you know, again, with the idea of Belgian beer. You you think that there's going to be a brewery on every corner, um, at least me as a ignorant American, you know, thinking about Belgian beer. So um, the fact that it has taken, you know, like what 150 years for the next cool ship to to come around. Um, yeah, I mean, well, okay, is there? I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm butchering this, but there's no, 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 yeah. No, but I understand it. The, the 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 cool ship has a sort of totemic significance for Belgian beer, doesn't? Yes, Brussels beer specifically in the beers of the Zena Valley, um, and it's true. And if the geographic scope of the book had been wider, then there definitely would have been more cool ships. But right, frankly, frankly, I mean, there is. I mean, at least up and I mean, when I started this project, there was only one cool ship in Brussels. It's not like I couldn't go. I I could have gone and taken a photo of another one because there, there just there just wasn't any. They had all been melted down or taken away or moved somewhere else um so i mean that was quite a simple decision for me like i i always i mean circularity is 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 always nice it's always nice to have a callback so as you said it starts and ends with a cool ship it's no i mean once people get the book in their hands they'll see that so it's not a, it's not a spoiler yeah i'm not yeah this yeah um and which which i think was really nice but yeah i mean i would have like <laughs> Maybe it's maybe it's a, a slightly contrarian aspect of my personality, uh, and a sometimes squeamish relationship with the sort of contemporary lambic fandom. Um, who's anyone who's ever read anything I've written about it or has spoken to me personally will know that. Um, I didn't want to focus on lambic, and I couldn't because you know if to focus on lambic in Brussels is to focus on Cantillon, and I couldn't. Right. You know this this isn't a book about them they feature significantly and i'm not trying to underestimate you know un- under undersell their their um influence on beer in the city because it's been huge but yeah 
I mean, up until 2019, there was only one cool ship. Um, there's, yeah. there's, there's actually more than there's. So even since I published the book, a new Lamech Brewer has announced itself on the scene. So it's like, yeah, if I'd written this five years later, there definitely would have been at least one or two more. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it just, it strikes me as, and again, you're geographically hamstrung in, 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 in some ways, but just that it wasn't more of a part outside of Cantillon. In yeah, the city it's true. Is, that's yeah. true. I, that's true. And I think probably if I were to write it again, maybe that would be different. Um, the challenge being that the sources are there, but the, the objects are not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and that's true. I mean, maybe, maybe I was too, you know, looking back, maybe I was, I was too Lambic averse. But because I also feel like that story has been told so many times, maybe not of the individual breweries itself, but of the sort of culture. And also like the stories that I could have told, they're all very, they're all very depressing. Like it's like family brewery run into the ground, bought yeah. out by bought out by their industrial rivals and shut down and 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 that's it. I mean, you know, you can tell that you can tell that story a couple of times, but at a certain point it becomes a bit repetitive. At least for me as a as a writer, you know, I think my interests just lie elsewhere as a writer as a drinker as just a you know a, a, a human who enjoys a good time and, and 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 being out in the world i imagine that there are objects that have come into your life that hold just personal significance um you know sometimes you know for for me it's you know certain glassware or a bottle opener um or something that means something to me and really only to me um that would never fit into a book like this <laughs> is there something in your life yeah there's that a you couple use of... regularly that uh there's one thing that i use regularly and there is another thing that I have on my bookshelf, which is slightly self-aggrandizing. So I'm not sure if I should talk about uh, Do it. both. Um, so uh, the bottle opener, I actually don't know where it is right now, but it's usually in the shelves downstairs, is a bottle opener that uh, Rudy Gekier gave me from uh, Rodemack. So he's, the, you know, if anyone knows Rodemack, yeah. he's, he's the big cheese at Rodemack. Uh, and I did an interview with him a while back. Um, for is that is that the one from the two hundred year old uh, fooder yeah, with course. the? With I'm pretty the sure. I'm it? pretty sure everybody. I mean, I, it's probably like it's probably like the the splinters of the cross at this point. The uh, the the fooder was so large; it's given thousands of people a bottle opener. But still, I mean, I'm not trying to take away from your moment, but I have one on my desk in front yeah, of me. Of course, right you now. do. I think <laughs> that I think, that Rudy gave think, me. Yeah, I think it's on this. I think you know to. <laughs> To expand that religious metaphor even further, it's probably on the stations of the cross as you visit Rodenbach, um, <laughs> which is fine, but it's still, you know, it's nice. And because I've stopped writing. No, of course it is. I'm not trying to take your moment away, even yeah, though I just did. Yeah, of course you are. Yeah. Um, I think because I've stopped writing professionally now and I won't be doing those interviews again for a long time, you know, it, it's nice. It's a, it's a piece of history in and of itself. How historic. Maybe we'll have to carbon date. But it's also reminds me of a time when I was, you know, crisscrossing the country on trains, going to breweries and interviewing people who I never otherwise would have met. Yeah. Um, and then there's another one. Well, there's two, actually. One hangs off of the other. Um, the chalice I won at the British Guild of Beer Writers in 2018 when I was a young beer writer of the year at the yeah. fresh faced age of 32, um, which is nice to still feel young in your early yeah. 
I think it was Lord. 32. I can't remember now anymore. But anyway, that was a real you have to be 35 or younger to get it, you right? Have to be, well, actually, you have to be previously it was 40 or younger to give you a, <laughs> to give you a sense of the demographics. Um, yeah, but most of the time when we all hit 39, we look like we're about 61. So yeah, that's true. It's a hard life that we live. Um, but that, that was sort of, I think that, you know, awards are awards. You, they mean as much or as little to you as, as the meaning that you give them, if that doesn't sound too trite, you know? No, I, I agree with that. Um, but when you start a project and you live in a country and you write in a language that is not the language of the two, of, of the two communities in which you live, French and Dutch, and you're sort of writing in the void and to get external, um, external validation like that was really important for me. Um, and I know probably more important than is healthy at that moment. Um, and obviously I curse the guild that I haven't kicked on and won an actual award that wasn't for young people. Um, but uh, all right, I mean, get in line. There's there's a bunch yeah, of people I know. who are no, complaining no, no, about no, no. that. These I, I'm, days. I'm joking about that. I mean, honestly, if I really thought that I deserved it, I, I wouldn't say it. Um, so that was really an important moment for me. Uh, and it sits there on the mantelpiece and it sort of reminds me that, you know, as someone who deals a lot with insecurity about their writing and about themselves, that actually, you know, it's not actually that bad. You know, the, the yeah. writing is the writing is pretty good. And then yeah. hanging off of that is a lanyard I got from the first time I judged at the Brussels Beer Challenge, which is probably my favorite beer, annual beer experience that I do. And it's actually the place where we, we met for the first time, if you remember. I do remember. Um, and I really enjoy that because it's it's like, okay, the beer judging is one thing. Anyone who's ever judged beer in a competition will tell you what it's like. I mean, it's pretty pro forma. But actually what people enjoy most and what I enjoy most about those weekends when I get to do them is hanging out with people, reminding myself that I'm part of a community um, of writers, of drinkers, of brewers, of whoever, because it can feel a little bit sort of at arm's length sitting here in Belgium writing about beer in the English language. Um, and it's really fun to have people come over and just drink and chat shit and talk about nonsense for a few days every year. I couldn't agree more. The and I'll always is, have the yeah. I'll always have the evening we spent in a barn somewhere in Wallonia not getting fed. Oh, um, so that was always good. That was uh yeah. I was in a bad headspace. My phone had been stolen the night before. I remember, I was complete, I remember you were completely sour. just like yeah, I was in a bad headspace and we're in a uh, I mean it was it was it was we had a good time it, in the end. We had a good time in the end, but yeah, there was what 70 of us and it took like nine hours to get a meal. It was, it was, that was a, yeah, there's a short story in there somewhere, but it, it probably might be under the Stephen King uh, genre. <laughs> um, the book is called a history of Brussels beer in Fist 50 objects Owen Walsh. Congratulations on this. This is it's, it, it, it's a lot of fun to read and I hope everybody goes out and gets a copy wherever books are sold. Thank you very much. The book, A History of Brussels Beer and 50 Objects, is available now. Get a copy, read it, and include it in your library. And a quick reminder that the Craft Brewery Cookbook is also on sale now where books are sold. Get your copy today. And All About Beer is, of course, back online. Go to allaboutbeer.com to catch up with great content. If you want to keep in touch with me, you have questions, comments, guest suggestions, you can email me. It's John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com, or you can get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Don't forget to check out beeredge.com for our This Week in Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner merch, and you can follow along on social media at The Beer Edge.
And of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search, and on Twitter and Instagram, it's at TWRaukBeer. And we're able to bring you this show each week thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com. And speaking of that, today's episode is sponsored by Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company's award-winning craft non-alcoholic beers are fit for all times. Downtime, work time, game time, even gym time. Pick a time and grab an Athletic because it's about time you can enjoy a great tasting brew anytime you want, even right now. Head to athleticbrewing.com and get some fresh brews delivered. New customers can even get 20% off with code ALLABOUTBEER20 and free shipping on two six-packs or more. A reminder, go check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. And go visit allaboutbeer.com and support us by going to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. As for this show, Mitch Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.